Welcome to the Green Edge podcast with Michael Cross and me, Fraser Harper. This is our update for the week ending 3rd of November 2023. We've had a busy week here on the Green Edge. On Tuesday, we were invited to a Green Skills Roundtable event jointly hosted by Deloitte and AIMA as a follow-up to their Green Skills and Green Workforce Transformation Report written a year ago. We counted over 30 participants from the UK and internationally, and a good discussion was had by all concerning how the Green Skills ecosystem has changed over the past year. Attendees from the Middle East also brought in their perspective, all good prep for COP28 starting at the end of this month. And on Monday, we were honoured to talk at a city, region and combined authorities Green Skills Network meeting convened by the Ashton Climate Change Charity. We were asked for our views on the state of the sector for place-based green skills development and to highlight what we regard as some of the current best practice. Now, somewhere in there, we also managed to get our weekly post written. And to keep us on piste, as it were, we wrote a piece to accompany our Ashton presentation. And for the post, in good circular economy fashion, we refurbished and repaired a few typos and reused our theme from last week of gradually then suddenly, making the point that we see gradual growth in many areas of the green economy, but at any time we might see tipping points that could make the green skills demand rocket go up. Michael, what might those tipping points be? There are a number of areas where tipping points could happen. One is on simple, straight procurement of day-to-day services. I think there's a tipping point around the management of the government's estate. And if you just take education, there are 80,000 buildings in that estate. So they all could contribute significantly to this. And then we've got the mandates that are in place. There's the zero emissions mandate affecting manufacturers of electric vehicles and internal combustion engine vehicles. And also the clean heat market mechanism coming into force in April. So we have actual mandates coming in, forcing people to actually make a choice between a low carbon or zero emissions option and the old fashioned fossil fuel option. So there are several things making that tipping point occur a little bit more quickly as people have forced to engage. And also there's a major incentive for people who are manufacturing old products to actually force you as a consumer to move to the future. We mentioned in the presentation that we could see the local area energy plans in there as well as potential tipping points. Yes. Well, local area energy plans were invented, you could say, by the Energy Systems Catapult. And what we like about them is that they work in an area, so you automatically have place location built in, but they bring scale and costs to it. And so we just take Manchester and their local area energy plan. They then they'd be able to specify by technology the number of units that have to shift in a five-year period. So if you just take fabric refit, it's 140,000 houses have to be undertaken in the next five years. For solar panels, there's the potential just for domestic of two gigawatts worth of power to be generated off those roofs. For electric vehicles, it's 190,000 in Manchester. For heat networks, 8,000 homes connected. And for heat pumps, 116,000 connected in the next five years. So each one of those specific numbers means you can start planning around the skills, the investment and the requirement. But if you take the whole strategic outline business case that Manchester have generated, it's a 64, 65 billion pound investment over the period to 2038 to make this happen. 
These are big numbers, but it starts to translate from the big number to specifics and then into costs, how that cost will be divided between the state, the local authority, and also us as individuals. So I think it's a great mechanism for breaking all those big numbers down to manageable numbers and make them very specific we can plan around. That's a big chunk of electricity, Michael. How many EVs did you say? 190,000 in five years. The actual number they need to hit by 2038 is just past a million. And that's in just in Greater Manchester. And if you move into the property market of Greater Manchester, you can then work into the number of social housing units, the number of housing association units, of which there are 208,000, and there are 108 organisations providing those houses. So the amount of coordination and planning and cooperation you require to make this happen is immense, and it can only happen at the local level. The other point I'd make around the local level, there was a really interesting paper, part authored by Ed Balls, and he went out and interviewed past political leaders and civil servants and key actors. And the conclusion they came to about regional policy and place-based policy around net zero was that to have a national growth strategy, regional and place-based initiatives must be fundamentally part of it. Good old Ed Balls. Right. Well, one of the points we made at the Ashton meeting as well was that in terms of place-based green skills development, we anticipate that Mission Zero Coalition's new report, The Future is Local, which was published in September of this year, will have a strong influence, won't it? It will. And I thought that was a great document and that it highlighted some great practices that are actually showing fruit now around the country, be it in Hull, Bristol, obviously Manchester, members I've just been quoting. And you're seeing the uptake of the challenge at the local level with clear five-year views about what needs to be done. And they are making progress to deliver this. What they need, though, is an overriding set of consistent national policies. And we heard that on resources and waste in our discussion with the Chartered Institute of Waste Management and Sewers the other day. The policy has been in place since 2018. It's agreeing the details that has taken the last five years, and we're just seeing light. So that's a critical bit. And then consistent funding over a decent period of time. Yeah. Well, we did make a few observations based on posts that we've done over the course of the year. We talked about the London Green Skills Further Education Hubs. There are five of them. And the support they've had from Sadiq Khan's Mayor Academies program. We contrasted that with the more guerrilla type fundraising that colleges in some of the local areas have had to do. Then there was Black Mountains College and the support they've had from the Welsh administration. And incidentally, Michael, Black Mountains College has been shortlisted for this year's Ashton Awards for Future Farmers, along with FarmEd in the Cotswolds, Bishop Burton College in East Yorkshire and the Apricot Centre in Devon. Well, we are coming onto that agricultural space with our work with City and Guilds, so that'll be interesting to feed into that. Indeed. And something else we mentioned in the post is that we hear a lot about local authorities missing out on funding competitions simply because they don't have the talented people with the bandwidth to spend their lives writing proposals. That's another aspect of it, isn't it? It is. Anyway, our usual reminder that you can find this week's post with a frugal reuse of that rather cute rocket graphic on greenedge.substack.com. And you can also find this podcast on all the major streaming platforms, including Apple, Google, and Amazon. Just one final point from this week's City, Region and Combined Authority meeting is that we heard a presentation from the Northeast, 
And we'd already made a comment about how the Northeast seems to be particularly well set up when we look around the country with green skills boot camps. So we're arranging a chat with the Northeast to find out more about the levers they're using to address the green skills shortage up there. But Michael, moving on, we've seen a response from HMGov now to the Environmental Audit Committee after EAC's letter on Rishi's Set Zero announcements. We did. I'd say it was a disappointing letter, but it needs to be read alongside the overall government's response to the annual review of progress on net zero by the Climate Change Committee. And the Climate Change Committee response by the government runs to over 200 pages. And the piece that really struck me in reading it was pushing out dates further as well on relation to skills. We were hoping the net zero workforce plan would be available, at least in draft form, in the first quarter. We're now seeing that moving to the summer, which is a great shame because people need these documents as a key input to to their planning thinking to look at their budgets for new academic years. If you're a local college, you really need to try and get into the planning cycle. If you take schools, for example, slightly different, our planning cycle for the following year, we crystallize everything by the December. And therefore, if you're going to delay on producing these critical documents to late in the summer, it means you'll have the colleges scrabbling around in relation to getting things right. And we know the colleges have just submitted a little five-point plan and thinking and areas of concern to the Secretary of State for Education. It went in on the 31st of October. So I think they're all sending in little arrows with major messages to try and reshape some of this debate. Mm, Okay. And finally... Rugby World Cup's over, Michael. What's your verdict? Well, we got the big calls right. We got the winner and we named South Africa as the winner. Was it a winner for rugby? I think I would slightly question. I'm very old-fashioned in the respect that I always like to think that teams that score tries should win matches and you shouldn't do it just by kicking. But give the due to the South Africans, their defence was immense. Their organisation was supreme. Their tactical movement of players on and off the pitch. I did feel the sending off was a critical moment to a key player. And I felt really sorry for such a good player, Kane, being sent off. So did I, yes. Having said that, South Africans had two yellow cards. Khaleesi got away with it. He did. And Kobe couldn't even face looking at the camera until the match was over. And I felt very sorry for him. I think those ones are always marginal for me. But the result was as it stood. And that was their third victory by one point. And you do enough to win. And they go with a clear plan. And they execute it brilliantly well. What we do know is quite a lot of those players will not be there in Australia. So let's hope we actually see a Northern Hemisphere team like France, whom it's a great shame to see them not progressing, or Ireland progressing to a final next time. I can't believe you're supporting France. I'm not supporting them. I just like to see some balance. And I'd like to see other countries getting through to the semifinals, therefore the cool stages being really competitive. Yeah, I agree. Well, I have to say, you said you heard it first here on the Green Edge. You heard it from you, Michael. I said, if you remember last week, that my heart was with South Africa, but my head was in New Zealand. I thought New Zealand would get it. But anyway, well done, South Africa. Once again, a testimony to sustainable growth, one little point at a time. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this Green Edge podcast. This podcast series accompanies the Green Edge newsletter, to which you can subscribe at greenedge.substack.com. 
The Green Edge is produced by Blue Mirror Insights.